Hello. Before we start the podcast this week, I just want to do a little advertisement for myself. Today is the 2nd of November, and it's five years since I released an album called Tennessee in 48th, which I recorded in Nashville. If you listen to it, you may recognize some of the music because I've dropped it into the podcast over the last three years. Anyway, I'd really like it if you might consider checking it out wherever you stream your music just to celebrate the anniversary. So search for me and it should come up or maybe check out my website and treat yourself to a record or CD. Anyway, back to space flight. While there may be plenty of books about the space shuttle, a brand new mission by mission guide is being released featuring stories from the astronauts who flew on board. Yep, the whole thing has been put together by an astronaut, Tom Jones. So today, we sit down with him to find out more. What was your favorite space shuttle mission? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 166 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 166 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? It's been a few weeks. I'm doing great. Yeah, I think we've both done a little bit of travel the last few weeks. So I went to uh, Jasper, Alberta in Canada. It was the first time I've left the country in quite some time and i had the time of my life i went to the jasper dark sky festival it's on my list of things to do that's for sure yeah i did a little bit of a little bit of speaking up there we had sort of a a reception dinner and i spoke a little bit there they did have some lectures which were awesome uh, mainly astronomy type lectures but they had one on intelligent robotics which was really amazing not something i'd been thinking about but if you guys can get up there, just get up there. Um, Jasper is just stunning. I, I've never seen anything like it being a Floridian. And a bunch of friends of mine met me up there, which is insane. Nice. So I'd like to thank them for coming out because that was wild. Did I see a thing that said that you saw the Northern Lights? I did. I, I didn't see them at the Dark Sky Festival. Unfortunately, I missed them by like a day. But I did see them in Edmonton and... Uh, Oh my God, they are stunning. I took a picture and it really does not uh, give them. I have an iPhone, so iPhone does not take great photos at night. But really, it was stunning. They were shimmering. They were green and sort of yellowish. It was just incredible. I mean, it was just like, wow. And I never never thought in my life I would actually see those because obviously I don't live anywhere near where you can see them. So my whole life, I was like, yeah, I'll never see him. That's like a, if you ever get lucky, but no, I saw him and it, it was just gorgeous. Canada is exquisite. The people there are awesome. Uh, the food is incredible. You just got to go. You got to go once in your lifetime, at least. If not, I'd like to go again, but that was like sort of a bucket list experience. Like, gosh, I had the best time. So I'm very sad. I'd like to go back again. Yeah, Lucy and I were, were were doing our bucket list recently, actually, and we put that on it, the the Jasper Dance yes. Live Festival. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something we want to do over the next few years. That's for sure. Yeah, you gotta you gotta go there, and uh, it was just it was incredible. So, 
And I know you've done a little bit of traveling too. Yeah, went out to California and then drove drove through to the Grand Canyon via Vegas. So that was wow, all good fun. Yeah, we saw saw plenty of stars. Plenty. Of, I I don't know if there was a meteor shower, but when we was, we were, we were glamping outside the Grand Canyon, glamping. There was plenty of shooting stars that night. It was a lot of fun looking at the stars. Wouldn't have been quite as dark as what you saw, uh, but it was it was amazing. And some some of the scenery. I love a road trip across America, and some of the scenery was ama- amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, the Grand Canyon. I, I've flown over it, but I've never been to it. I got to do that someday. The photos Absolutely. you put up were really cool. So, and they don't do it justice. None of them really capture the, yeah. the awe of it. You don't get the depth and the exactly. perspective of of being there in real life. They're still amazing photos, but it's nowhere near what it's like to actually be there. Anyway, let's get on with this week's main feature, shall we? Yes, absolutely. So a brand new book called Space Shuttle Stories, first-hand accounts from all 135 missions, has just been released by Smithsonian Books. It's been put together by astronaut Tom Jones. And believe me when I say that this is a must-have book for any space shuttle enthusiast. A few weeks back, Emily and I got to talk with Tom to find out more. Tom is a distinguished graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy. He piloted B-52D strategic bombers, studied asteroids for NASA, engineered intelligence-gathering systems for the CIA, and helped develop advanced mission concepts to explore the solar system prior to joining NASA's astronaut corps. Wow. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah, wow. Oh, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, wow, I could never be an astronaut. So Jones was selected to be an astronaut in January uh, 1990 and flew on the space shuttle four times, STS-59 in April 1994, STS-68 in September 1994, STS-80 in November 1996, and STS-98 in February 2001. In 2006, Dr. Jones released his book, Skywalking, an Astronaut's Memoir. And he co-authored Planetology, Unlocking the Secrets of the Solar System with Ellen Stofan in 2008. He's also released a book called Hell Hawks with Robert F. Dorr, which is an action-packed true story of an aerial band of brothers in World War II. Anyway, today we're talking to him about the space shuttle. It's time to crack on. First of all, uh, thank you for being on our show this week. And let's rewind to way before you flew on the space shuttle. Tell us a bit about your background and what inspired you to enter aerospace. Did you have a childhood dream or did your interest come about from something completely different? I was growing up in Baltimore, Maryland during the height of the space race in the 1960s. So I was following all of the early Gemini shots and rolling into Apollo. And it happened that my town, Middle River, Maryland, Essex is the town I grew up in next to Middle River. Middle River is the site of the Martin Marietta plant. And they were building the Gemini rockets there for the NASA program to get ready for the moon landing. So all the missiles being built were being flown down to Cape Canaveral from there. And I, as a Cub Scout, I got to go to the rocket factory oh, wow. and watch these missiles being built on a field trip. So here are these 200 foot tall missiles in front of me as a 10 year old. And I thought, those astronauts have the coolest job. They get to ride this amazing machine and they're going to go places that nobody's ever been. And I thought that was the moment that I thought this was a job that I'd like to aspire to. And then of course, with all the press hoopla of the Apollo program and 2001, a space odyssey and Star Trek, 
all of those things rolled into me wanting to become an astronaut one day. And that was my goal from then on. Awesome. So uh, your latest book, Space Shuttle Stories, contains 130 interviews from astronauts and people who contributed to the space shuttle program. And that that's a lot. So what was the process like to get this many interviews done and how long did it take? Well, it started with a conversation with Dennis Jenkins, who's the great space shuttle historian. And he's got those yep. great books, uh, The History of the Space Transportation System. And I met with him in Cocoa Beach when I was down there speaking at Kennedy Space Center and we had dinner and I was admiring his book and talking to him about his process of doing that. But what we need is a, a complementary history of the astronaut stories that goes with his fine technical work on the shuttle. And so I thought, gee, we're right in the middle of the first year of COVID and I'm not doing a whole lot of traveling. So maybe I could get started on these astronaut interviews. I actually thought of the idea with Dennis right before the virus hit. And then we're all at home. So I started thinking we should start these interviews now while I can catch people without them being uh, here and there all over the place. So their schedules were amenable. And I started chronologically at STS-1. And I started oh, wow. sending out emails to Bob Crippen and <laughs> all of his colleagues from the early shuttle missions and started to line up Zoom interviews. And that's how I did the job. And it took about two uh, a little over two years until, uh, you know, closing the closing half of 2022 before I got them all in the can. And there was some urgency to it because the early shuttle missions were crewed by just two people. The first four uh, were crewed by just two astronauts, and we've already lost some to time. So I couldn't talk to John Young, for example, but I got Bob Crippen. And P.K. Mattingly was on STS-4. He's not giving many interviews these days. And so I had to go search out an oral history that he'd given to NASA 20 years ago to, to fill in for his slot. But we um, started to get all those interviews in the can, and then you have to transcribe them. And that was the lion's share of the work, was transcribing and editing those down so that they would fit in the book. Yeah, I imagine there was a hell of a lot of stories you had to edit out. You must have enough material now to do this book three or four times over, right? That's a great uh, assumption, and I think it's a good conclusion. There's 45 minutes of an interview and countless stories that I could have used, but my editorial limit was to put one astronaut story on one page with a facing page of photos in the book. So there are over 500 illustrations of the book, uh, photographs from the NASA archives that I chose and then the editors worked with me on. And then to get an astronaut interview down to one page, about 550 words, uh, was a real challenge. So I had to go through that 45 minutes of transcript and then pull out the best nuggets that addressed something that hadn't been covered by another astronaut in the book. So I tried very hard not to make this book a repetitive series of stories with everybody telling about the blast off. There's a few stories about that, but then we put that aside and we go on to the meat of these missions and what made them different and unique. And so that was my challenge was to find something that hadn't been covered before, was inherently interesting or funny or dramatic and then try to get those down on paper within the page limits that we had. Obviously, the, the book covers every shuttle mission, have you said, from 1981 to 2011. And there's this great aspect of this where you've got the use of the space shuttle being very different at the end of its life from the start, and i.e. building the ISS, whereas at the start it had a very different purpose. And also the personnel are very different in the end of the shuttle's era than the start. It's a 30-year period with people being selected to be astronauts from a, a much bigger cross-section of society. And that was obviously a big societal shift also over that time in work-life balance and mental health discussions and, and things like that. 
Do you notice a big difference in the type of responses you got from the later astronauts to the earlier ones? I would say that the mission of the shuttle was evolving. And as you know, it shifted over towards space station construction for almost the last 10 years of the shuttle's um, career. Uh, but just before that, in the science era of the 1990s, I think you'd find the big shift from test piloting and proving the shuttle as a vehicle over to using it as a science platform. And it's everything from fixing Hubble to flying research satellites to um, running mini space station science payloads in the space lab and the space app. And so you get in the 1990s a shift in the stories, I think, uh, to the content of the missions and the science research and the challenges of fixing Hubble and doing brain surgery on a space telescope <laughs> from the early pioneering test flights and engineering of the shuttle as a vehicle. Uh, and of course, the, the, the first 10 years were so affected by the Challenger accident in 1986 and the recovery from that. And that's got a drama all its own with the story of human failures and errors and communications failures that led to the accident and then how NASA pulls itself back out of that morass and gets itself flying again to a very successful 10 or 15 years of shuttle science before we reach the, you know, Columbia 17 years after the Challenger accident. So there is this shift in the stories and you'll find much more um, scientific enthusiasm from the mission specialists that I interviewed in the 90s and the early 2000s. So how did your previous writing experience inform your most current writing experience? Well, you know, I, I had a temptation to just take Skywalking and plug it into this new book, you know, because <laughs> it's all of my shuttle stories. And, and I flew four times, so... And I had a variety of experiences on the shuttle orbiters, so I, I could have certainly stuck myself into space shuttle stories a lot more, but I resisted the temptation. So I'm in there a couple of times with some of my uh, anecdotes, but I really wanted to hear from my colleagues. And so I took the shuttle writing experience that I got from Skywalking and the stories that I wanted to tell. And then I said, what's everybody else's experience uh, when they flew the shuttle? Because, you know, I flew with 20 people. And so I've, I've heard their stories or lived some of their stories with them. And then we've had some debriefs and some, some time to digest what we experienced together. But there are so many other people who flew missions, bang, 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 bang in the 1990s when we were flying six or seven missions a year that I'd never heard their stories because we went rapidly into the next mission a month and a half or two months later. And while we had official debriefs to learn the technical lessons from each mission, we never got to sit down and socialize and have a beer over your favorite space story as you and I would do. So I took this opportunity to sit down and, you know, while I didn't have alcoholic beverages involved while I was doing the interviews, it would have been very nice to compliment <laughs> our conversations with that because it was just the right mood for hearing from people that I'd never got a chance to, to schmooze with. Uh, some of them were my heroes from the 1980s who I grew up admiring and wanting and wanted to emulate when I got to be a shuttle crew member. And some of them were my colleagues. And then there were some, you know, newer generation shuttle folks who I just barely overlapped with before they came on board. And I wanted to hear what their experience was when they did these very complex space station assembly missions uh, in the 2000s. So it was really a rewarding experience. And I, I doubt there's anybody in the space program who's had the experience that I've had in sharing all these experiences. Obviously, we, we risk big spoilers here, but but was there perhaps one or two stories which really caught you off guard that you weren't expecting? Oh, I uh, I think it's fair to share a few few of these with you. Um, uh, one was very dramatic, and that was STS-27 right after the Challenger 
return to flight. And so Hoot Gibson's in command of a mission to fly a DOD mission, a classified mission. What happened though, sadly, was that uh, on launch, uh, the I think the right nose cap of the solid rocket booster disintegrated and shed a whole bunch of debris that plastered the orbiter's heat shield. Wow. And when they got to orbit, ground controllers had seen this in their launch video. And so when they got to orbit, they were advised by mission control to take out the robot arm and look at the underside of the shuttle as far as they could with the limited reach of the arm. And Gibson looked at the closed circuit TV camera monitors in the cockpit when they looked at the uh, end effector video. And he saw all of these white patches of damaged tiles on the right inner wing of the orbiter. And he said, we're going to die. Oh my. That's what he thought to himself. And he was convinced that the damage was catastrophic. So they did a thorough survey, but in a nutshell, the video that they could downlink to the ground through the degraded encrypted TV circuits was not sufficient to alarm mission control. And they weren't as disturbed by this as, as Gibson was. And so when they did the reentry a few days later, he was not sharing this with his crewmates, but he was seriously worried about the shuttle surviving reentry. And you'll read that story in the book about how they came through and what the results were of that. So that was really a nail biter for me. And again, uh, I had not arrived at the astronaut corps till 1990. So I missed that story and you know, who was my boss, but he never called me to his office and shared that story with me. <laughs> yeah. So that was a, an eye opener. And then I think, you know, just the joy that runs through this book is, is a common theme that people get up to orbit and they look out the window for the for first time and they're blown away uh, by the view of the earth and the cosmos. And so, you know, I think on Kathy Sullivan's mission on her first flight, she was going to be the first American woman to walk in space and she's flying with Bob Crippen and she's the flight engineer. And so they get up to orbit and I think she was MS-1 actually just to the right of the flight engineer. So they, they get up to orbit and she's just amazed at the view out the front windows of the cockpit. And she says, oh my God, look at that. And she's coming out of her seat and looking over the shoulder of the pilot, trying to get this view. And Crippen says over the intercom, no, no, not time for that now. Focus on your checklist. We've got a burn to do here. Get back into the, the job. And so she says, okay, I've just arrived in space, Kathy says, and I've been overwhelmed by the view and I've been given demerits by the shuttle commander on my very first mission. <laughs> so she says it was a, a mis mix of joy and you know disappointment and embarrassment that I'd been chided by the shuttle commander. Of course, that was just you know, business like Crippen at work. You've already kind of touched on this question, but what do you think are the most poignant parts of the book? Well, it's certainly poignant to discuss the two lost shuttle crews. And I had to capture their voices somehow. If you read through the book, you'll read the stories of the crews that came before and after Challenger in Columbia. And they all allude to the failures that occurred to cause the destruction of those shuttles and the loss of their crews. And there were a lot of near misses before Challenger, for example, from uh, evidence in the recovered boosters that showed the joint design was faulty and that the joint was not performing to specification. And it was very close to disaster on several previous shuttle missions. And yet NASA's managers did not stop flying to fix the joint. Uh, they didn't stand down. Instead, they thought they could repair it and redesign it and incorporate change as they went forward within a very aggressive shuttle schedule. They were trying to get up to, you know, a dozen missions in 1986, I think. 
they'd flown nine as the maximum number in 1985. So those were missed opportunities to stop and avoid the accident. And then you see the same process Columbia 17 years later where uh, debris from the external tank or the boosters was being shed and hitting this, the heat shield or missing the heat shield and causing damage elsewhere that was not so critical. But in a couple of cases, they really dodged a bullet like on STS-27. And so these were missed opportunities to save the 14 colleagues that we lost. And so in some cases, the astronauts knew about the damage that they had sustained or had barely dodged. And in some cases, the pace of flight and debriefs and preparations for the next mission were such that they, didn't, they never even heard about the close calls that they had uh, until after the accidents looked back forensically at each of these accidents in turn. So you see the lost opportunities to prevent these accidents. And then you have the voices of the 14 crew members. And so my challenge as a writer was to capture that somehow and do it in a dignified and respectful way and to try to remember these folks as individuals and as people who were engaged and consumed by their passion for spaceflight. So for the Challenger crews, they flew in the early 80s and then 1986 was when the accident occurred. Some of the crews were rookies and they hadn't said much in, in public before then. And some of the crews were veterans like Dick Scobie, for example. Um, and he'd said a few things in press that I could go and search for. Uh, but I had to find a, a voice for each of those seven crew members. And then, uh, and I succeeded, I think, uh, in a way that captures a little bit of their personalities within the space constraints I had. And for Columbia, it was a different story. I knew all these people. They were all my friends and I worked with a lot of them on a regular basis. So I tried to think of a way I could somehow do justice to those seven crew members on Columbia. And I decided when I finally found an email from Laurel Clark, from orbit down to her family and friends on the ground, that that was the way to capture the Columbia crew's voice. Because her joy and the amazement that she ex expresses from orbit at how their research mission was going, I think just stood for everybody's voice. And so I didn't have to go and get a long quote from everybody on that mission. And I hope that the families, the, the other crew members besides Laura will, will understand that that's how I viewed it, was that I, I felt Laurel's voice captured everybody's joy and fulfillment on that flight uh, before their re-entry. So that's what I did there. I, what I, I just uh, used her email with permission of her husband, John Clark. And I think that's uh, a great way to capture Columbia's mission. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've had a few questions from some of our Patreon subscribers. Jen Jones said that she was reading something the other day and it made her realize that people seem to be more fascinated by things when they go wrong rather than when they go right. So with that in mind... What was the most expensive thing you ever broke while in space? There wasn't, there weren't too many things that I damaged beyond repair. You know, you could always recover. You know, in space, if you make a mistake, usually you can ask for help from mission control and they'll come up with some workaround. Uh, often it's as simple as turn it off and turn it back <laughs> on. And just the power cycle will sometimes recover the system. I, on, on my second mission, we were on uh, STS-68, which was Space Radar Lab. And we, were, we had 14 cameras in operation to capture the science targets on the ground, in addition to the radar, which was the primary payload that was scanning the Earth. Uh, but we had one big aero mapping camera called a Linhoff that had a four by five inch negative. And it was mounted in our overhead windows on the flight deck. And you know, in the haste to get one in operation, reload the magazine and turn it on, get the science target captured out the window, I plugged it in too rapidly or didn't make the connection properly. And I got a spark from the power cable leading oh. to this uh, mapping camera. 
and spark and a little plume of smoke came out of the, the camera. You know, <laughs> you just think, oh my God, what have I done? Set the shuttle on fire or damage the camera. And so probably that's the most blatant malfunction I had. But fortunately, we had another cable. So I just <laughs> retired that one permanently <laughs> and I got the other cable out and, and got the camera going again. I don't think I ever had any other serious failures. You know, the one that's crucial is to not make a mistake outside while you're doing an EVA. And I had three spacewalks on space station construction on STS-98. And what you don't want to do there is damage multi-million dollar hardware that's one of a kind outside on the station on the Destiny Science Lab, for example, that we were installing. Uh, and you don't want to lose anything. <laughs> and that's what the nightmare of every spacewalker is, is to lose equipment outside. And we have very good protocols to tether to every piece of equipment before you pull it out of its restraints or its storage area and make sure that you tug on the tether and make sure it's tight. But we had one incident on STS-98 where my friend Bob Kirby tethered to a little tool board about the size of a book. Uh, and he had it tethered to his, his spacesuit. And as he started to move off, the tether hook opened. There was a mechanical latch failure there. And it let go of the tool board and it was drifting across the payload bay. And so oh, I talked to Bob after this. I wasn't even there at the time, but Bob was thinking about, oh my God, how am I going to get all of my work done in the next six hours without the missing tools that are floating away on that tool, tool board? And as he was running this through his mind, rapid fire, looking for the workaround, he thought, I could still get it. <laughs> so he <laughs> scrambled around the handrails on the payload bay to the, the far side and he intercepted the tool board before it drifted out of the payload bay and he got it back onto his hook. No way. So that was a near miss and it wasn't his fault because it was this mechanical hook failure. But that's the kind of quick thinking you need to do is in parallel with running through the backup plan, you've got to say, I can recover from this if I act quickly enough. And there's a good story in the book about someone who snared a missing piece of equipment because of amazing flying skills. I'll let you look for that in the book. I love this. They, they sound like scenes from a movie. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Right. So another from one of our patron subscribers, Kevin Jennings said he would like to know if you had any superstitions. What sort of things would you or perhaps a family member would do to bring good luck to a mission? And while writing this book, did anything like this ever come up while speaking to other astronauts? I'll save the second part for later because I can't think of a, an incident where we talked about too much superstition in space. But I think everybody has their lucky charms. For example, on my space station mission, um, when we got up there, we put on stars and stripes socks because we were installing the Destiny Science Lab. And I would call that our good luck charm. And even the Russians on the first expedition at the station put on the stars and stripes socks when we were installing the US <laughs> Science Lab. So wow. I don't know if that would happen today, <laughs> but it was a, a way to bring us all together in a sort of a, a, a very uh, visible way. And so that's the kind of thing that we did. Um, Marsha Ivan's on that same flight. She was our robot arm operator. And all she had to do was birth the $1.4 billion laboratory at the space station and not make a mistake. And, well, they gave her two inches of clearance on each side of the payload bay to maneuver this 16-ton behemoth out of the cargo bay and not scratch it. And so to help her out, she positioned a little uh, doll version of Buzz Lightyear right by her robotic arm controls. And she had Buzz right there to sort of cheer her up and to, you know, make her laugh. But it also was a way to orient the doll so that she could match that to the EVA crew member she was working with outside and sort of get the right orientation of the crew member so she know which way to 
turn the rotational or translational hand controller. So wow. it was actually a work aid in, in fact as well, but it was her little good luck charm during the, the three EVAs that she did uh, with flying us around on the arm and flying the lab around on the arm. Oh man, that's so cool. That's such a practical way of thinking about things that's as well, cool. isn't it? Love that. I want to come back to something you said earlier where you said that while you had technical debriefs uh, after shuttle missions and obviously when you were training, you would perhaps go through some of those those things. There was never a time when you all sat down and, and spoke through your space stories. I know you guys were super busy, but do you wish there perhaps was more time in your schedule as astronauts to just kind of share personal stories? Do you think that would have helped you as, in your preparation for missions, particularly for perhaps rookies? Did you ever lean on experienced astronauts or, or, or veteran astronauts coming back for, for checks or whatever to, to kind of find out a little bit more? Or was it just not time for that kind of thing? Time was really uh, tight uh, when you're an astronaut. You're working um, 50, 60 hours a week sometimes. And, you know, you're working maybe a half of a Saturday to catch up with the stuff that you missed during the work week. You try to get some time with your family, obviously, on the weekend. So there wasn't a lot of time to to do the kind of schmoozing. When a crew came back, they threw a party after their mission. And so you were over at the Outpost Tavern in in Houston there. And and there you might have a chance to just catch a few favorite stories from the people as they were just celebrating their their mission and their return and their success. There were other opportunities that we got to schmooze. And that was in the simulator, we would often do a, a mission simulation with the flight controllers in mission control, and it would be a pickup crew of astronauts. They'd put four or five of us together just to, to run through a generic mission to help train the flight controllers as well as ourselves. And while you're spending eight hours in the box um, training, uh, you would get to share some stories from people who'd flown. And I, here I'm a rookie. I haven't been on a space flight yet. And so I'm listening to every story I can soak up from the other veterans. And another chance to do that was to fly a T-38 and if you went out to White Sands for a shuttle pilot to practice his landings, or you went to the Cape to look at the vehicle, you would have an hour and a half on the way to either place, El Paso or to Florida, to just talk about space stories. I'd, fl- I'd fly with John Young and say, John, what was it like on the moon? <laughs> so what's the program worried about right now? He was up at management by then, and I'm here a rookie astronaut, and I'm trying to pick his brain about what he's worried about. And, you know, sometimes a, a space story would come to mind when he was telling me about those things. So those were two, uh, two ways that we could catch some of those informal stories. But no, there was, there was never going to be enough time to schedule a, a beer fest to have everybody um, just uh, let loose. That was just catch as catch can. So there are probably a million Apollo books, but in many ways, the shuttle program's history is still being written so finally, we have a question from Jillian Cassie. Uh, the space shuttle tends to get a lot of flack in the current space community. So do you think this is justified? And why do you think the shuttle deserves to be appreciated? Well, of course, we know it had its failures. And it was never economically viable as a, a money-saving, reusable spacecraft. However, it was unique and ahead of its time as a, a reusable space plane and orbital spacecraft. It was a technological tour de force. It was built in the 1970s and flown in the 80s for 30 years. And no one has equaled the performance of the space shuttle since then. And its capabilities are lacking today in any space system that exists today. So it's a unique uh, chunk of space history. It's the longest lived NASA program. And I think it's the most consequential because it taught us how to work and live in space for the long run. So all the lessons that we apply on the space station today were learned on the space shuttle initially and then applied to the station. 
we did space station operations on the shuttle with Space Lab and Space Hab. We um, handled spacewalks routinely on the space shuttle and all those spacewalking techniques that we use today were learned there. And when we go to the moon again, and when we go on to Mars, a lot of the operational lessons about safety and operations and protocols and how to prevent accidents are coming from our experience on the shuttle. So in its 30-year career, I think it was an amazing success at teaching us how to operate and live in space. And it certainly made the United States and NASA the most capable space operators in history. And we're still you know, running on the momentum taught to us by the shuttle today. The space station as a laboratory is far exceeds what the shuttle could do. However, it's not a very dynamic system. It's just falling around the earth uh, continually. And it's a very different mindset. Uh, it's not the rapid response to crisis that the shuttle taught us to deal with. Space station, you have time to deal with emergencies and to develop a plan. In the dynamic phases of flight of the shuttle, you had to react within seconds or else there could be a catastrophe. So, you know, what we know about how to respond to emergencies intelligently um, was taught to us by the space shuttle. And that's going to really come in handy when we face the greater risk levels returning to the moon and, and going off into deep space. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for, for spending some time with us today. And Emily and I have both been sent an electronic version of this book. And I really think it's going to be a must have for any space flight fan or historian to have this book in your collection. You're going to be referring to it all the time. There's been other attempts at books like this, but I think having that astronaut perspective on every single mission and the photos you've selected just make it such a, a wonderful tool for research and just to get an overview. If you quick need a, an, an overview of a mission and you, you, you've got 10 minutes, you need to do a quick research about SDS-98, for example, you could open up to the page and get, get that perspective straight away and, and all the, the details that you need. So I think this is wonderful. And now you, you, earlier on, before we came came on this interview, you showed us the first copy that you've got of it. And it's a it's a lovely looking book as well. I can't wait to get my hands on a physical one and, and have this as part of my collection. So thank you so much for, for doing it because I think this needed to be done. And you're right, the time sensitive in terms of making sure it happened, but while we still can, and that's so important. So thank you for doing it. And thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about it. And we wish you all the best with the release. It comes out this week as this podcast airs. So thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. It's a pleasure. And it was a great pleasure and honor to do the book. And I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you very Thanks. much. Don't forget to leave a rating or review on your podcast provider. And please consider sharing space and things with your friends. So that was really awesome. I, I'm very excited to see his book that's coming out. I, I love the fact that he did it with Dennis Jenkins because Dennis Jenkins did the three-volume Bible, basically, the Bible of the space shuttle. It's beautifully illustrated, very technically rich. So if you have any technical questions about the shuttle, it likely is in there. I don't view this as a companion to that book, but I view it almost as like, sort of the astronauts version of that, like that piece of that, if that makes sense. I think we both said it's kind of a nice reference as well because there were so many shuttle missions. I'm a, a space historian and I, I'll be honest, I cannot keep all the shuttle missions in my head correctly, especially the ones from like 1985 because they <laughs> yeah. had the 51 and 61. Yeah, I can't keep up with that. Yeah, They all had that weird designation so it's nice to have something you can easily reference and say, okay, this astronaut was on this 
And here's what they did. And that's wonderful. And plus, Tom Jones is such a good storyteller. I'm also looking forward to it because, honestly, I feel like much of the shuttle history still has to be written. A lot of people aren't aware of it. I'm welcoming more books about the shuttle program because I think people need to know about it. As we see nowadays, there are so many sort of misconceptions and arguments about the shuttle program. Absolutely. So I think this will be really awesome. On the basis of this interview alone, I don't think you could have a better person put this book together. The way that Tom clearly has thought about how to tell these stories and the work he's put into to get in those stories gives it an extra edge that I think other books perhaps won't have. The fact that it's come from an astronaut who will know the right questions to ask other astronauts. I, I think that it's such a great concept for a book. An astronaut going around and asking all the other astronauts about their mission. I just think that's such a... I mean, it's a great talk show. I'd love that. A, a YouTube series or a podcast where where we heard all those interviews in, in full, I think would be absolutely fascinating to have two astronauts together questioning each other on those things. So so the fact we've got yeah. that in concise form with this book, which, as, as I said in the interview, he showed us the, the physical copy. We recorded this a few weeks ago. So although the book's out this week, we, we recorded this a few weeks ago. And that book looks amazing. It looks like something you want to have as part of your collection. And, and it's going to be something you are going to refer to. We've seen the, the interior electronically. And I can tell you, it absolutely is something you're going to want. There's been a, two great shuttle books out this year. There may have been more, but off the top of my head, there have been two. The, the New Guys and then this. I think the story, as you said, the story of the shuttle is beginning to get told. It's beginning to get written. And luckily, it's beginning to happen before, as as Tom said, before these people aren't here anymore to tell the story. That is a long period of time of, of story that needs to be told. Yeah. And perhaps for us diehards, it would be great to get even more details. A volume two of this would be amazing. The other stories that, that he also got that perhaps he had to take out, I'm sure there's five or six pages from each mission that he could have done. So I was super happy to see that he's doing it. Having had this interview, I th and obviously we've had the advanced copy, the electronic copy, but this interview, if this interview hasn't made you go, I need that book. I, I'm confused why you're listening to this podcast. I know. I'm like, I think it's going to be a, and I'm not just saying this because he's on our show. I'm saying it because as somebody who writes about spaceflight, I'm like, this sounds like a, not just a fun read, but sort of an excellent reference, you know, where you can be like, man, what was this shuttle mission? What was this doing? Who was on it? Oh, okay. You can, you know, you can pull that out and it gives you a story about it, you know, and it yeah. gives you something from the astronaut's perspective. People are like, well, you can go on Wikipedia. And I'm like, eh. okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where it may not be right. It may not have the right data. And, it, you know, I'd rather have it from an expert perspective. And Tom Jones certainly is an expert. Absolutely. Great interview. A uh, wonderful book, and I really think that this is something that, that people will want. So thank you, Tom, for spending some time with us. As always, the full unedited interview will be on our Patreon page and an incredible bonus question. I, I know within what you've just heard, there was a, a John Young bit, but there's a full John Young story. I know people in our Patreon always say they want John Young stories. So there's a whole bonus question just for you who have signed up to our Patreon 
check that out. And if you want details about the book or how to find out more about Tom Jones on uh, online, then all of that will be in the show notes. So head over to spaceandthingspodcast.com or just check the description on your podcast platform. It's no secret that space is hard, but finding space and things isn't. You can find the podcast on all major platforms. So, Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight since we last spoke a few weeks ago? A friend of mine posted this on his Facebook profile, and it's a uh, an update from at NSF Voyager 2 on Twitter. And I just thought this was incredible. According to that Twitter uh, page, Voyager 1 has sent a seven-hour playback from her eight-track reel-to-reel tapes of data from interstellar space. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know it's reel-to-reel tapes. I didn't know that worked. (laughs) For those of you who may not know, that is a spacecraft a little older than I am, and I'm surprised that works anymore because I tell you what, my knees and back are not what they (laughs) used to be, so I'm a little shocked the reel-to-reel on that actually works. So according to this tweet, Earth will try to capture this data with five arrayed antennas at the Madrid Deep Space Network facility, and I'm probably mangling this, uh, Robeldo de Chevela, Spain. It'll be neat to see what kind of data they collect from this as the Voyagers just keep moving further and further further out in space. But it also speaks to how ro- robust the 1970s technology is still. Obviously, there are two Voyager spacecraft. They're still going. They're still sending uh, data back from extremely deep space. I'm looking way into the future here, and people are probably going to roll their eyes, but I'm very excited to see what it continues to uh, bring to people, you know, to sort of help us understand that deep space environment. Because who knows if one day, way in the future, you know, we're going to have to send people out there to sort of preserve the human race. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Absolutely. (laughs) We never know. I mean, that's something I think about. So I thought that was amazing. So, Dave, what's caught your eye this week? So while I was away, I had a complete shutdown from all things which I thought was very healthy of me. But since I got back, I've done a very brief scan, and there are two stories which jump out at me. And the first is the next Virgin Galactic flight, which takes place on the 2nd of November, and the crew announcement of that flight. Yes, I know. I, I, It's funny because when you, before you said that, I was like, God dang it, I forgot the Virgin Galactic flight. And thank God you mentioned it. Yeah, go on though, go on. Okay, I feel like this is exactly what we were hoping would happen once these companies started doing their commercial suborbital flights. And it really does just gets me so excited about the future. So on board, we're going to have Alan Stern, who is an American planetary scientist known for his work on New Horizons, uh, which conducted the first flyby of Pluto back in 2015. Uh, he's also made significant contributions to the study of the outer solar system and is a respected author and advocate for space exploration. He's also an explorer who's even visited the Titanic. Uh, in my opinion, a really fascinating person and a dream guest for this podcast. If I had a list, he's definitely on that. In fact, both of these crew members are. I'm really pumped about Alan going to, to on this mission. His crewmate is Kelly Girardi. As I said, another person I'd love to have on this podcast. I imagine for many of our listeners, you're aware of her already. 
Uh, it's hard to define exactly what she does because she does so much. She's a scientist, engineer, researcher. She's a mission ops lead for a company called Palantir and an incredible science communicator has done so much to inspire people to get involved, especially young people, I think, with, with spaceflight. I think spaceflight ambassador is probably a great term for yeah. Kelly. Um, she's also a director of the Explorers Club and serves on the Defence Council for the Truman National Security Project. Plus, she's written and released a really fantastic book called Not Necessarily Rocket Science, A Beginner's Guide to Life in the Space Age, and a children's picture book series called Luna Moona. This really feels like it's not just billionaires going to space. It's putting people into space who are the right people to help tell the story of of what that is and really does give me hope about what is going to happen in the future and how space is actually beginning to open up to all. It does for me anyway. Yeah, I'm especially um, excited about Kelly going up. I feel like she's flying for a lot of us, you know, uh, of us women because I've sort of... uh, followed her story for a few years, you know, and she's taken a more unconventional path to becoming sort of a payload specialist. But that's showing younger women that if you have a dream, you really can make it come true, you know, and it doesn't have to follow a specific path. If you follow her Instagram, uh, which I do, she's uh, detailed what kind of experiments she's doing on board. You know, this is actual science. That's very important. There's a lot of sounding rocket missions that are suborbital that carry scientific payloads because, frankly, we're still trying to figure stuff out uh, about our atmosphere and about, you know, the magnetic fields and, and things of that nature. We haven't figured everything out yet, people, you know, it, it, <laughs> about the space environment because, frankly, there hasn't been a ton of trips up there yet. I mean, it's not like, you know, going in an airplane or taking your car to work. I'm just very excited about this. I think it shows that if you have a dream, you could actually make it. And this is so important for young women. Kelly's showing, you know, people that her daughter's age, you know, she has a daughter who I think is five or six, who's amazing too, in her own right. And she's showing young people like that. If you have something you really want to do, you can do it. There's no, there's no reason you can't. And I really love that. So I'm so happy for her. I can't wait to watch her fly. Although I'll be honest, I'm a little nervous. Because it's like seeing, it's like seeing a friend fly. You're like, oh god! But I, I think she's going to do an awesome job, and I can't wait to see her bring her insights of what she's seen to the world. I think it's going to be awesome, and I couldn't be happier for her. I, I also feel like this is just the, the start for space flight for Kelly. I, I don't yeah. think this is going to be her only time she goes to space. I agree. I think she's going to be someone, someone that we look to in the future as someone who's going to be an experienced space traveler who. It really helps show us the way, uh, and and I I'm, I'm excited about this mission. Really excited about this mission. So, yeah, it should be happening in the next few days. So, yeah, potentially as the day this podcast comes out, but yep. these things have have a tendency to get delayed. But that's the plan. So, there's one other thing I want to just quickly bring up. And again, I don't. It's all a bit speculative at the moment, and I don't know enough about it. But Axiom Space who have been sending private individuals to the space station over the last few years, have announced an agreement with the UK Space Agency for a UK astronaut mission. Wow. Okay. There's no date been put on it yet, but they've said there's going to be a mission which will just be UK astronauts 
probably be spending a couple of weeks in orbit carrying out research. Uh, my uh, my guess is that would be on a SpaceX Dragon capsule, as Axiom have, have used so far. This has obviously caused a lot of speculation. Tim Peake has a new book out this week. Tim Peake, you may remember, retired as an astronaut uh, a few weeks ago. But part of the part of the announcement is that they want uh, to have an experienced astronaut command yeah. the mission. We've only got one person who's really in a position to do that, and that would be him. So suddenly everyone's now speculating that Tim Peake's going to be flying again and commanding his own mission. He may. Which would be amazing. That would be but awesome. the UK Space Agency has since come out and said, look, it's far too early for us to be, be saying the names of people, so let's not get too excited. But we haven't got a timeline on this. We don't know. But it's very exciting for for people like me to know that a UK is going to be a UK mission. That's, that'll be uh, cool. Just UK crew. And that'll be, it's going to be so cool. It's going to be really, really cool. There are currently three astronauts in training at ESA. We've got Tim Peake. That's four people. The four of them flying together on one mission would be so huge for this country. Um, and I don't know if that's the plan. If it is, that would be so huge for this country. So uh, this is a story I'm excited about watching develop. We'll do a bit more of a rundown of perhaps some other things next week, but that's what's called R.I. To submit questions for any of our upcoming guests, join us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash spaceandthings. So that's it for this week. It's great to be back, and we're now planning our episodes for the rest of this year. Thanks for your continued support. Please do leave us a review or a rating if your podcast platform allows. We're up against podcasts supported by big radio conglomerates. So anything that you can do to help us to get the word out and improve our standings in the charts really help. We do jump in and out of the charts in various countries at various times, which is quite cool. Yeah, that is cool, but we need your help. We're up against the big guys. So a huge thanks to our Patreon subscribers too. Uh, we really do appreciate your continued support. If anyone else would like to join, please head to patreon.com slash space and things. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meet. This has been the Space and Things Podcast. Thanks for listening. New episodes every Thursday. <laughs>